Well, one way we show we love Jesus is by learning about him. Amen. Getting to know Jesus, which is the main part or point of the Bible. Jesus tells the Pharisees in John chapter 5, 39, you search the scriptures for in them you think that you have eternal life, but it is they that testify about me. All the Bible points to Jesus. And so you show you love Jesus by getting to know Jesus. And we get to know Jesus by getting to know Jesus' word. Amen. That's why every single Sunday here for as long as I've been here, since 2009 and, and longer than that, as far as I know, we haven't simply done what we just did, sang songs about Jesus or pray about Jesus, but we've opened up God's word to hear what the Bible says about Jesus. Amen. To hear God's very word. So we do that this morning as we open up God's word. It's an amazing thing to open up God's word. Michelle talked about it earlier that, that we have the opportunity to, to read God's word. Hmm. You know, we don't boast in that fact. Lord. We don't put ourselves above any other church, right? But, but we do want to think about the, the privilege it is to open up the Bible. Amen. I was at a funeral earlier this week with some friends I hadn't seen since my BC days mm. for the Lord. <laughs> they, uh, <laughs> they since uh, learned that I was a pastor, and so one of my friends uh, curiously and just innocently asked, like, is it hard to be creative enough to find out what to say every Sunday? Mm. And I said, no, I'm not creative at all. All right. <laughs> but we have a Bible. And so what I do every week is just open up the Bible, and the next passage that's in the, the text is what we preach on. It's kind of normal for us, but it's kind of mind-blowing to be with it. The Bible actually have, has enough content, enough excitement, enough meat, enough water to actually feed God's people every single week for a lifetime. Amen. All right, that's a commitment that we have as a church. All right, and so we don't stand up here and do a bunch of frills or fireworks. Right? We don't have light shows or smoke machines. Right? Generally, all that happens here on a Sunday, we pray the word, we sing the word, right? We preach the word. Amen. We see the word through the ordinances. Amen. We seek to obey the word. So if you have your copy of God's word, turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. And this morning we'll look at verses 34 through 40. Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. Jesus says, oh, the text tells us this. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Mm. On these two commandments depend all the law and the promise. Simple text, straightforward text, and so a straightforward kind of main idea I think this text is pointing us to. The, the main point of Matthew 22, 34 through 40, the main point of our sermon this morning. Live the life the Lord has called you to. Mm. One of loving him and loving people. Mm. Live the life the Lord has called you to live. 
one of loving him and loving people. As we study this text this morning, we'll focus in on two things we see in these few verses. One, we see unrelenting rebellion displayed. You see that in verses 34 through 35. And number two, we see that unlimited love is demanded. Verses 36 through 40. So point number one, unrelenting rebellion displayed. Verses 34 and 35. And point number two, unlimited love demanded. Verses 36 through 40. Number one, unrelenting rebellion displayed. We come here to the, the third confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders in chapter 22. Right, it's the chapter we've been in for several weeks now. It, it be, these kind of confrontations begin in verse 15 with an encounter with the Pharisees regarding paying taxes. And continue with the encounter in verses 23 through 33 with the Sadducees regarding the resurrection. And now it circles back to the Pharisees again. When they heard that Jesus in the previous confrontation with the Sadducees had silenced their opponents, shut them up, demolished their little seemingly cunning question about the resurrection or, or his divine power or wisdom to do anything, including raising a corpse. But after seeing Jesus shut down the Sadducees, what do the Pharisees do? Well, they don't back off. They don't reconsider their aims. They don't doubt whether they should continue challenging this man. I mean, he wins every single argument. Instead, they double down. They gather together again, the text tells us. No doubt to, to plot how to entangle Jesus in his words. It's what we've seen throughout Matthew's gospel. People keep coming for Jesus. From the devil in the wilderness to the Sadducees and Pharisees now. And he keeps whooping them all. And yet they keep coming. Keep challenging. Because it shows us that perseverance is not always positive. Perseverance can be life-giving when it joins with God and his aims. All right. But deadly. Mm. Suicidal when aimed against God. Yes. When you persevere to do evil, to engage in battle against God. Which is what these religious leaders are doing in combating Jesus. Jesus is the eternal son of God, the second person in the Trinity become man to save mankind. And yet, Many men, many women reject him, rebel against him, and persist in doing so. We see that here. The Pharisees are hard set on destroying Jesus at all costs. But he's popular. I mean, he's done miracles for folks. His name rings out. And, and, and here now in Jerusalem, there's enough excitement about him. That the religious leaders can't just put their competition straightforward to death. Not with her, without incurring the wrath of the people. And so they, they first try to discredit Jesus among the people. Which is why they keep trying to, to come to Jesus with these questions to catch him up, to, to make him slip. 
say something that, that, that will now cause the people to turn against him so they can go attack him. It's what this lawyer in verse 35 does. Uh, not a lawyer in, in, in the sense that, that we come to know the word. Right? He's not someone in the, the, the legal system. Right? This, this is a lawyer who's an expert in the Jewish law. The, the Gospels also call these people scribes. So, so anytime you read the word scribes or lawyers in the Gospels, think of someone who is trained right, well in the Jewish scriptures. They're the ones who meticulously studied the law and copied it down. They, they were well acquainted with what the law said. In any case, we learned that this man asked Jesus a question, not as a sincere inquiry, but to test him, to tempt him, to try to get him to slip, say something wrong, do something wrong, become so irritated by yet another question that he asked irrationally. <laughs> Want him to do something that would justify people dismissing him, dismissing him and them putting him to death. And so he asked, his lawyer asked in verse 36, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? It was a matter of great debate among the religious leaders. There was no consensus. Which one commandment would Jesus prioritize among the others? Whichever one it was, it was sure to upset any number of other Jews who thought that some other law was their chief duty and not the one that Jesus picked. So, so it's a setup for Jesus to say something that, again, would make him a villain. Again, it was asked to, to test him. But how are you going to test him? I mean, yes, this man who asked the question was a lawyer, an expert in the law, but the man he asked the question to was the very lawgiver himself. The very God who gave the law. So, so to think that somehow this man had the right to weigh Jesus' answer as either right or wrong was incredibly prideful and all focus. But human hubris often puts ourselves in the seat of judge and critic. Amen. Even of God himself. Putting him to the test. I wonder what that looks like in your life. I mean, stop for a minute and examine your own life. In what ways are you testing Jesus? Is it in seeing if his wisdom is really better than yours? Maybe it's in marriage. You've got your own ideas of how things should be working out of how your spouse should be treating you or acting, of, of what you will or won't do, of what really needs to happen to make this marriage better. And maybe you consult Jesus, his word, but only to see if it matches what you truly think is best. All right. Or maybe you put Jesus to the test by your actions. You continue to put yourself in bad situations, on the brink of a job loss on the brink of home loss, on the brink of a marriage falling apart, on the brink of committing some sexual immorality, and expect Jesus to bail you out every time, to, to cause you to stop, to, to keep a situation from progressing, to prove that he's really God by rescuing you. Jesus does have the power and the ability to, to save, to help, but it is not wise to put him to the test. Amen. 
and then to doubt him if he doesn't act in the exact way you want. Mm. Don't continue to test Jesus' wisdom or power like the Pharisees and Sadducees by continuing to rebel against him, refusing to submit to him. Rebelling against the one you should love ultimately hurts you, not him. Turn away from the unrelenting rebellion constantly being displayed in our lives. And instead, turn towards the unlimited love that's demanded. Now that's point number two. Unlimited love demanded. Notice Jesus takes the challenge of the Pharisees' question. Even though he didn't have to. Uh, which command is the greatest? Well, he knew the question was a trap, destined to make him prioritize the wrong thing in their eyes. But he can't be wrong. All right. He is God. He ultimately won't be shown to be wrong and confused. Those who question him, those who rebel against him, will be the ones who turn out to be the ones on the wrong side of history, on the wrong side of the law, on the wrong side of God. That's always the case, friends. Jesus is 100 for 100. Mm. He don't lose any debates. Mm. He is the word of God in the flesh. Right, he is wisdom personified. Amen. When he speaks, it's always right, always true, always authoritative. Amen. Friends, that is still the case. So when we hear Jesus speaking this morning All right. in his word, we must pay close attention. We must take heed. Amen. It is nothing less than God himself talking directly to us. Amen. Telling us how we ought to live. Amen. Jesus answers this question about the greatest command in the law with a, a twofold response. He says in verse 37, first, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. When asked about the greatest command, in all the laws, the Ten Commandments that we most know and the 613 total commandments in all the Old Testament, mm. Jesus focuses first and foremost on our relationship and commitment to God, Amen. how we are to relate to and respond to him. And the verb he uses is interesting. I mean, think of all the other verbs that could legitimately have been plugged in to the command in verse 37. You shall obey the Lord. You shall submit to the Lord. You shall trust the Lord. You shall listen to the Lord. You shall follow the Lord. You shall fear the Lord. You shall imitate the Lord. You shall worship the Lord. But Jesus foregoes all those other options and says what you and I must do, what the greatest thing we must do is love the Lord. You see all those other things being loyal to and listening to, following and fearing the Lord are all subsumed in the larger idea of loving him. Amen. It's not an original concept or idea that Jesus introduces here. He, as he has shown so many times in this gospel, is a man of the book. The Bible is the basis for his words, for his actions. What a wonderful model for us to rely on the scriptures 
to fill our thoughts and form our words. Jesus here quotes from the passage Michelle read for us earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's the great Shema passage, a passage of scripture that Jews would have recited daily. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 5, we read, Hear, O Israel, Shema is the Jewish word for he. Hear, O Israel, the, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Yeah. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Amen. What is the greatest command? Well, the command that was greatest in the Old Testament. All right. Nothing has changed. Love the Lord. Amen. Now, perhaps it feels strange to you, cold-hearted to you, presumptuous to you for God to command love. But love for God should not be viewed as a standalone command, but rather as a consequence, as the logical response of creature to creator. In other words, there are reasons for this command. Why should you love the Lord? Well, the text tells us in verse 37, because he is our God. Amen. Love the Lord your God. Amen. He is the God who has pledged his love and care for you. Demonstrated his love time and time and time again for you. Committed himself to you. Amen. Your love is a response to his love. Amen. As we sang earlier, we love because... He first loved us. Amen. I mean, turn back in your Bibles with me for a minute to Deuteronomy chapter 6. If you're using one of the Bibles under the chair, you can find it on page 151. Deuteronomy chapter 6. I want you to turn there because I want you to see this for yourself. We can often think, and people often say, the Bible is just a book full of commands. Amen. But we need to look at those commands in context. All right. So, so, so look there in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1. And Moses says, now this is the commandment, mm. the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you, may do, that you may do them in the land that you are going over, to possess it. And then drop down to verse 5, where he gives the commandment we just talked about. Love the Lord your God Amen. with all your heart and with all your souls and with all your might. Mm. So we see this is a, a straightforward command. But zoom out a bit and, and look at the context in which this command is couched. Love the Lord after looking at all the Lord has done for you. Amen. I mean, that's basically what the opening chapters of Deuteronomy are doing outlining God's great work for his people, bringing the people of Israel out of Egypt, leading them through their years of wilderness wandering up to the present point of about to enter into the promised land. I mean, if you have an ESV, just look at the headings right there. Right before chapter 2, verse 1, the wilderness years. Before chapter 2, verse 26, the defeat of King Sihon. Before chapter 3, verse 1, the defeat of King Og. It's recounting God's protecting his people, 
even while they continually rebelled against him while crushing all their opponents. And, and then look there in, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 32. For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other, whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire, as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation? By trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. Amen. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. Amen. There is no other besides him. Amen. Out of heaven, he, he let you hear his voice, Amen. that he might discipline you. And on earth, he let you see his great fire. Yes. And you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers Amen. and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence, by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. All right. Amen. Therefore, you shall keep his statutes and his commandments. Amen. You hear that? Amen. Therefore, All right. you shall keep his commands. Right. As a consequence, mm. you see, the grammar and the syntax and the structure of the Bible are important. Amen. God's commands don't front load the conversation. God does. His majesty and his splendor, his power and his mercy, his love on display through all the mighty acts for his people. Amen. That's what's at the forefront. God wants you to taste and to see that he is good. Yeah. To know and experience him working on your behalf. Look at the long narrative of all the ways he's wonderfully worked for you. Amen. And then, therefore, therefore, what should you do? What Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, and Matthew 22, verse 37 command? Mm -hmm. Love him. Yeah. Amen. I mean, look at what he's done for you. Amen. Look at what he's done for us, yes. beloved. He's created us. Amen. He's made us in his image. Yes. The triune God, out of the overflow of the eternal love shared by the Father and the Son and the Spirit, created us out of the abundance of that love. Yes. Amen. That we mere creatures might know the magnitude of divine love. Yes. Amen. He's sustained us. Mm. He, he's kept the sun for millions of years or thousands of years, whichever one you think. He's kept the sun far enough away not to scorch us All right. and close enough to continually warm us. Mm. He's kept the borders of the waters from crossing over into the boundaries of the land and washing us all away at once. Mm. Amen. He's continually kept the right balance and separation of oxygen from carbon dioxide. Mm. So that the, the breath that you just took All right. did not kill you, but filled your lungs with enough oxygen to, to live another second, All right. and another second, mm. and another second. Mm. 
All because he's on the other end of every single breath. Every single atom, every single element, every single molecule is upheld by the word of his power for all time and forevermore. He's provided for us. The clothes on your back and the shoes on your feet are signs, mere signs of God's care for you. The car in the parking lot and a little bit of gas in the tank are mere signs of God's care for you. The food you ate this morning or the stomach that's grumbling looking for food this afternoon are signs that God cares for you. The brothers and sisters around you in church this morning are but a small symbol of God's care for you. All we have needed, his hand hath provided. He's rescued us from something far worse than captivity to a corrupt leader in a foreign country. He's rescued us from the very domain of darkness, from captivity to sin that that had us all destined to eternal damnation. And with no way out, we were, the Bible says, dead in our trespasses and sins. But by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, God reached in and saved us. And he didn't do it from afar. He sent his only begotten son, the eternal son of God, Jesus Christ, to become a man. To live the perfect life that we should have lived. A life of totally and fully loving the Lord. But then Jesus not only lived the life we should have lived, but he died the death that we deserve to die for our sins. He took on every single one of our sins, past and present and future, and he went to the cross as a willing substitute to die in our place to eternally satisfy the wrath of God. He was buried, really dead in a tomb. But on the third day, the father raised him up, showing that his sacrifice was sufficient payment for all who would turn from their sins and put their trust in him alone. He ascended into heaven where he presented his heavenly father with his finished work. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God as the king and savior of the world, ready to come back and to gather all his people that we might live eternally with the father and the son and the spirit in the new heavens and the new earth. You see, the world loves to paint the picture of God as some evil egomaniac barking out commands from his perched throne for his people to just serve him, worship him, love him. But tell the whole story. All right. He is not some distant, disconnected deity uh, deprived of affection and so demanding our love. Mm. He is a personal, present God, intimately involved in the lives of his people and steadily displaying his great love. His call for us to love him It's not because he lacks or is wanting of anything, but because he is worthy of everything. He is a great God. He is our God. Why should you love the Lord? Because he is your God. Love the Lord your God. But but not only are we told why we should love the Lord, we're also, also instructed as to how we should love him. With every fabric of our beings. Look at the latter half of verse 37. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. These are three totally separate, 
mutually exclusive parts of a person, but rather they have an over, overlapping function. The idea is that you should love the Lord with all that you are. Love for him should come from our whole person. Yes. Love the Lord your God with, with all your heart. Amen. The heart in the scriptures often represents the center of a person, the core of who he or she is. It's not only the place of affections, but where decisions and plans reside. So unlike in our society where the heart is associated simply with a feeling, here it's a feeling that feels thoughts and fuels action. To love the Lord with all your heart is to commit yourself completely to him. It's to cherish and adore him for who he is and what he's done and to commit to living for him. To, to love the Lord with all your soul is to have longings and desires for him above everything else. Mm. The Hebrew word for soul here is throat. So what comes in and goes out passes through that organ, the, the, the throat. Whether it's food that comes in through the throat to satisfy or words that go out through the throat to, to praise others. So, so to love the Lord with all your soul is to love him with, with this kind of inner spiritual organ where the deep desires within you are for him and your deepest longings are to give him praise. Amen. But we must also love the Lord our God with our minds. Amen. Have you ever thought about loving the Lord with your mind? Amen. With your intellect? With your reasoning and thinking? I mean, consider that God has given you this amazing tool called a brain to process information, to, to think deeply, to reason, to, to make conclusions. What then, when we take this amazing thing that God has given us and dawn it by plunging it into a screen for 8 or 10 or 12 or 20 hours a day? Well, by exposing it to, to nonsense on gossip sites. Or suppose it news outlets where it's less news and more a smear campaign. Mm. There is a duty, a command to love the Lord your God with your mind. Mm. So, so young people, that's why to engage yourselves hard in your studies is not simply to get good grades. It's not simply to get good scores on your SATs and get into a good college. It's not simply so you can get into the good graces of your parents and get new shoes or new phones or new freedoms. Mm. To engage yourselves hard in your studies is primarily and foremost an act of worship to the Lord mm. who gave you a mind to think, All right. All right. to love him with your mind. Amen. You know, sadly... Very sadly, it's often said of Christians that we are unthinking people. What a terrible thing to say. And too often it's true that we close up our minds and sometimes justify it by saying, I just have faith. No, no, no. Faith is great. But faith is fueled by facts. Faith is fueled by words. Faith is fueled by reading and studying and meditating and thinking and comparing and contrasting and making connections and coming to conclusions. All right. Faith flowers under the work of watering and tilling the life of the mind. Mm. Mm. 
I mean, consider how often the scriptures commend or command thinking. In Psalm chapter 119, verse 52, the psalmist says, when I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. Comfort comes on the heels of thinking hard about God's word. Oh, we've seen several times in Matthew, Jesus, in engaging in conversations with his disciples or religious leaders about spiritual matters, appeals to their minds. He asked in Matthew chapter 17, verse 25, or 18, verse 12, or 20, 21, verse 28, or 22, verse 42, what do you think? The Apostle Paul exhorts us in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, as a way to attain joy in the midst of trials, to get a peace that passes all understanding in the midst of anxiety, that whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything that is excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, to, to think on these things. And in his final letter to his beloved protege Timothy, Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 7, think over what I say. For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Amen. You get that? God grants greater understanding of his ways and his works through our thinking deeply. Amen. So how are you loving the Lord with your mind? You know, you know, one of the reasons I give out books is so that we can be a congregation that engages our minds in thinking about the things of the Lord. So come back this evening. Come to evening service. And if you come back this evening, yes, we're going to pray together. But before we pray, I'm going to give out more books and more books and more books. Y'all get tired. Like, you keep on giving. No, I read it. That's okay. All right. We're going to build up the habit, Lord willing. Not simply to, to read, to have, to have read but to read as a way to stir our minds towards God. And that's why we open God's word Amen. every Sunday and try to preach meaty sermons from God's word every Sunday, no matter which man stands behind this pulpit. Amen. Uh, we don't simply stand up and tell jokes or engaging stories or personal illustrations, but we seek to read God's word, to Analyze what it says to draw out its meaning and to apply it to different areas of our lives as an act of engaging our minds towards worshiping God. Amen. We are to love the Lord with every single part of our beings, heart, soul, mind, to the fullest extent in whatever area or station we're in. We love the Lord as students and as stay-at-home moms, as teachers and as data analysts, as government workers and accountants and custodians and people in the IT field, every single thing we do is to be out of love for God and as an expression of love for him. Amen. Isn't that a wonderful way to live? Yeah. Isn't that life-giving? Yeah. I mean, it can feel restrictive, right? I mean, Satan loves to use God's commands to make us feel restricted. Amen. But that's only because he hates God. All right. But when you understand that the Lord has loved you, and has called you to love him. And that's not simply love me on Sundays. All right. In this little setting. Mm. 
or, or love me in one specific profession, like a pastor. No, it's love me with every single fabric of your being in every single situation and setting you're in. That can be life-giving. Because even if you can't stand geometry All right. and don't see how you will ever use it in real life, you can study hard to understand it, not because you love geometry, but because you love God. Amen. And you can demonstrate your love through something seemingly as meaningless as finding the sum of the X, Y, and Z angles of a triangle. Mm. It can be life-giving because even if you hate your job, you can love the Lord in it. Amen. Even if you're having a really hard time liking the current status of your relationships, your marriage, or your friendships, you can love the Lord in it. Mm. You see, it gives you a purpose that's not matched to a paycheck. All right. That's not tied to other people's opinions or other people's actions. Mm. It's, Lord, I want to live for you today. Mm. To live in a way that above everything else, my love for you is expressed. Amen. Friends, ask the Lord to help you do that. Amen. Pray to him, even now. Amen. Lord, help me to see all of life as an opportunity to love you with all that I am. Lord, help me to see all of life Amen. as an opportunity, as training grounds to love you with all that I am. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your soul. Matthew 22, verse 38 tells us that this is the great and first commandment. Our first duty, our greatest duty, to love anything or anyone else above God is idolatry. Amen. And to love anything or anyone else rightly Amen. without God is impossible. Amen. You and I must love God first and foremost. Amen. And let that love filter into all other kinds of relationships. Amen. And friends, a love for God will always filter into other relationships. Amen. It must. And you see that in, in verse 39. The lawyer asked which one commandment was the greatest. But Jesus gives two in response. First, love God. That, that is the priority. But along with that, out of that is a second command like it, Amen. of similar nature, also involving love. In verse 39, said, Jesus says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. Notice here that the Bible just assumes that every person has a certain love for, concern for themselves. Amen. Now, no doubt, there's, there's a love for self that can pridefully exalt self above God that's sinful. But there's a more general, intrinsically human self-love and self-care that the Bible calls out and commends. But then the Bible commands to lift that love off of just ourselves and aim it at others. Amen. Love them just as we love ourselves. Amen. I mean, you see it in Paul's commands for husbands in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Amen. He who loves his wife loves himself. Amen. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Amen. 
And so the implication then is that a husband should nourish and cherish his wife, care for her, see to her needs just as he naturally sees to his own. Love others as yourself. Amen. See to their good, not just your own. You know, I think over the, the last couple of years, the Lord in his kindness has taught us something of a master class on our need to love others and shown how far from the biblical command we often are. I mean, think about it. Christians have allowed things like masks to separate us, to turn each other into enemies. We've elevated our preferences and rights above the biblical command to love fellow people. But love often looks like laying down your rights. And the Apostle Paul had the right to eat and drink whatever he wanted with a free conscience, knowing that nothing you put into your body morally defiles you. Amen. He had the right to take a salary for his ministry work, just as others did. But he relinquished his rights as an act of love for weaker Corinthian believers to ensure they did not have occasion to stumble. Jesus Christ had the right to hold on to his place of equality with God and his place of prestige in heaven. But he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He laid down that right. He took on flesh and became a man and dwelt among us and he then laid down his life because of his love for others. Amen. Amen. I know we, we have a congregation that thinks differently about vaccines and masks and policing strategies and political priorities and responses to social injustices. But I'm very thankful that the Lord has kept us from crucifying each other, Amen. from tearing each other apart. And it's in part because we've loved each other more than our stance or view on this or that issue. Friends, I know how hard that is to die to self out of selfless love for others. I'm very glad to be pastoring a congregation where we're modeling that. I pray that we will continue to model that as a way of following Jesus' command here to love our neighbor. Amen. And because it's love our neighbors as ourselves, mm. we need to constantly be thinking about how we want to be loved. Amen. How is it that we want others to love us? Mm. Isn't it to give us the benefit of the doubt? Mm. Isn't it not to assume the absolute worst about us, even if we might disagree on something? Isn't it not to demonize us? Mm. Isn't it to give us enough space and grace to grow? Well, if that's how we'd like to be loved, All right. then that should mark the way that we love. All right. It is something of the way God has loved us. Amen. Patiently bearing with us. Gently rebuking us when we're wrong. Con con comforting us when we're beaten down. Walking with us through every season and trial of life. Amen. Love your neighbor like that. Amen. But your neighbor is not just your fellow church member. Your neighbor could be your family member. Mm. Your closest family member. Your spouse. We've looked at Paul's command in Ephesians for husbands to love their wives as their own bodies. But the command here would apply to wives as well. 
to love your husband as yourself. What would that kind of love look like in your marriage? A love for your spouse as you love yourself. Amen. Well, it will probably slow you from assuming that the main problem in your marriage is him or her. It will probably slow you from feeling like you have the right to give full vent to every problem or perceived problem that you see. It will probably mean giving the time and attention to actually study what your spouse needs, what they appreciate, and to listen to what they say. It would mean doing for your spouse what you most need to do for yourself. Kill your sin. All right. And so loving your spouse as yourself means not just identifying all their faults, Amen. all their weaknesses, all their sins, but becoming the chief ally with them against their sin. Amen. How can you help your spouse not just see their sin, but see their need of a savior? See their need of sanctification in a certain area and pursue Jesus together with them. <laughs> what might love for neighbor look like for the unmarried people in your life, in our congregation or beyond? If you love them as yourself, then, then love should extend to caring for them, being committed to them, even though they're in a different season of life than you. Saints, singles are not second-class citizens or Christians, and we need to make sure we don't make them feel like that. Amen. Amen. Loving them as yourself might mean working to ensure that the same warmth and fellowship you enjoy with your spouse and children in your home can be shared with them. Working to ensure that the kind of built-in companionship that, that you may sometimes take for granted in just having other people at home to talk to can be enjoyed by people who may go home to an empty house. How can you love them as yourself? Invite them into your home. Go to there, spend time together. We need help doing these things, though. Amen. And this neighborly love extends to your actual neighbors in your neighborhood, and even to people you may not even know. But you know they're people made in God's image. And because you love him, you commit to loving them. Amen. I mean, that's what we see in Luke chapter 10, where Jesus similarly commands, love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. And the scribe asks, well, who is my neighbor? Mm -hmm. And Jesus goes on to tell the story of the Good Samaritan, emphasizing that your neighbor is whoever the Lord puts in your path to do good to. Amen. Amen. Now, because we, we live in a society where love is so loosely used. Where, where loving others is seen as loving everything about them, everything they do with no questions or no criticisms attached. We need to make a disclaimer here. Because love for God is first, then love for others can't be in endorsing or condoning things that God hates. Amen. It can't be in affirming or celebrating sin. Amen. That shows neither a love for God nor people, God nor neighbor. And one of the most loving things you and I can do is to actually tell someone that they're in sin. Tell them that the judgment that they will incur because of their sin. But then tell them of the salvation that can be theirs because of a Savior. Amen. 
Because of what Jesus Christ has done in dying and resurrecting so they can, so resurrecting so they can be saved. Friends, calling people to repent and believe is loving. Amen. And so is showing compassion to, to victims of sexual abuse. Or giving counsel as some of our members do at Forestville Pregnancy Center to, to people considering abortions. <clears throat> or taking courage to stand up against racism and discrimination, even if personally you don't feel affected by it. Amen. You care because others are affected. Other image bearers are not being treated as image bearers. Amen. You love them as you love yourself. Amen. Motivated and out of an expression of your love for God. Love God and love people. On these two commandments, Jesus says in verse 40, depend all the law and all the prophets. In other words, all the commands of the Old Testament and all the Lord is calling us to now can be summarized in those two statements. Love God and love people. Amen. Friends, that's the life the Lord is calling us to live and has given us the power to live by his spirit. So saints, live this kind of life for the glory of God Amen. and for the good of fellow citizens. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. That's clear. Lord, you don't want us to be confused about what our duties are to you or to others. And so, Lord, we thank you for a straightforward word. And Lord, now we ask, Lord, that you would give us desire and ability to carry it out, yes. to follow you. Lord, command what you will and then grant what you command. Mm. Pray that you'd help us, Lord. Help us to be a people who love you with all our heart, with all our souls, with all our minds, and who love our neighbors as ourselves. Yes. Pray this for your glory, for the good of others. Amen. In Jesus' name. Jesus. Amen. Amen.